Hey guys, welcome back to the Misfit Independent Podcast. I'm Mika and I'm here with... Hey guys, it's Katie. Welcome back. We're so happy to have you guys back here. We've got a lot of really, really awesome episodes lined up for some future content. But for today, we've got a really interesting approach to something that we see every day, but probably have never thought twice about. And we're going to be breaking down Ponzi schemes and arguably the biggest Ponzi scheme that we've come in contact with. And we're going to break down exactly how the scheme operates, how it's come to be, and what the implications are to the everyday investor like you and me. We're also going to be diving into why you should be wary of IPOs and SPACs and a few things to look for when investing in these investments. Okay, so Mika, let's start it off. What exactly is a Ponzi scheme? So Ponzi schemes are run by, let's call it a central operator who uses the money from new incoming investors to pay off the promise returns to the older investors. So this makes the operation seem profitable and legitimate, even though no actual profit is being made. So when you think of Ponzi schemes, you may think of like one guy selling an impossible investment to a bunch of suckers. And this seems to be happening a lot, especially in Silicon Valley. So the thing about Ponzi schemes is most of the time, the people running the scheme would never even think that they are, as they are probably lying to themselves or even looking at other examples of things where people don't call it necessarily a Ponzi scheme. So for example, when we look at the banking system, in some ways, it does operate like a Ponzi scheme if you really think about it. It's like taking a bunch of people's money and lending it out to other people and then try to get more money from the people they lent out that money to, and then they just keep moving money back and forth between their different customers, which is not inherently that different from most Ponzi schemes as it relates to investments but it has a slight little tweak that converts it from being a legitimate banking service rather than being a Ponzi scheme, if that makes sense. I like that point, Katie. I think, you know, if you really think about it, the way that banking systems work is they do take funds from one account. And anytime you deposit money into a bank, they deploy that funding into different securities and different products. Like if you talk to anybody that works at a bank, they always call investments products. If you think about the banking system, it is kind of funny. It's like, it is, it can be thought about as a Ponzi scheme, but we'll get into that in a separate episode where we debunk the banking system. Yeah. A quick thing about the banking system is they never use their own money, right? They just take the money from their customers and lend it out, make profit on that, and then take their money, make money off them, lend it out, make profit on that. So it's kind of interesting to see how that works. The bottom line with the Ponzi scheme, what it actually is, is... It's when an investor takes money from a group of people or from, from a person and in order to pay that investor back, then goes to another investor and says, hey, I need, I need money to invest in this you know, unique venture or whatever it is that the, the business actually sells. Multi-level marketing, MLMs are an example of a Ponzi scheme, arguably, and that's something that we've chatted a little bit about. We can go into more detail, but basically it's when somebody takes money from an investor to pay back another investor. Bernie Madoff, if you guys know who he is, was one of the, he ran arguably the biggest Ponzi scheme in America, and he defrauded 
thousands, tens of thousands of investors out of billions of dollars over the course of like 17 years. And, you know, people that made investments with him had had lost their entire life savings, their retirements, like it, it was wild the kind of um, the kind of fraud that he had accomplished. And he was also um, a pioneer in electronic trading. So when we chatted with David Greenberg, he was really against electronic trading because of all the potential fraud that could come come about. And this is exactly an expression of that. So Bernie Madoff was the chair of NASDAQ, one of the biggest exchanges in the early 1990s. Um, this year, actually, he died in prison after serving a 150-year-old life sentence for money laundering, securities fraud. And I think he had 11 different felonies um, that he was accused of. So he was a money manager. He was responsible for one of the largest financial frauds to date. And his Ponzi scheme ran for decades. People put their trust in Madoff because he created this front of respectability, right? He was the chair of NASDAQ, for Christ's sake. Like he was a reputable guy. And his returns were were high, but they weren't crazy. Um, So he claimed to have a legitimate strategy. But in fact, what he did was he took money from some investors to deposit into an account, and then he used that account to pay back existing clients who wanted to cash out. So exactly what a Ponzi scheme does. And Bernie Madoff is not the only person who is known to be doing this in our modern day. Um, If you look at Silicon Valley, we are in the middle of an enormous Ponzi scheme. And we'll talk about this if you have thoughts that come up. I want you to just, you know, be open-minded and like listen to our thought process here and how we break this down. And then at the end of the episode, I want you to think about if your thoughts about VC, venture capital, and Silicon Valley are different afterwards. So I want to break down the process of, first of all, what venture capital is. We've talked about it a little bit, but I want you guys to have a firm understanding of what a venture capital fund is and how they make money. So a venture capital firm is a bunch of guys that have experience in running businesses, they come together and they have a pool of money and they decide to lend it out to investors. But of course, they're not going to give you their money for free. So what they do is they try to look for founders and startups that have this um, this potentially revolutionary idea. Like ultimately they're looking for the next Uber, the next Facebook, the next Google. And so they try to find these young, naive business guys who they can manipulate into this whole strategy. But essentially they're lending out their money or they bring in other investors in order to get equity in a business so that they can help it grow. So they apply their expertise. There is a lot of value that comes from VCs um, you know, it's it's guys that have a lot of experience. Usually it is white males. And that's why I keep saying guys, because, you know, there's not a lot of women in that field. Unfortunately, it's one of the venture capital and private equity are two industries where there is a huge gender discrepancy. But they they lend out money basically for equity in a business. And the way that they make money is through a management fee. So as Nika mentioned, these venture capitalists crave startups that have a revolutionary new idea, a new app or new platform. And as she mentioned, preferably with young, naive and not very business savvy founders. So you don't need to have the best idea to create a desirable startup for these venture capitalists. All you need to do is make it sound like a disruptive tech startup because tech startups have the allure of being 
able to grow super fast where you'd be able to double, quadruple, 10x, 100x your investment. But in reality, all these founders are doing is bringing in existing technology, like a fancy website or a mobile app into an existing industry. So what usually happens is the founder of these startups manages to get the startup going, but they run into one main problem. Their revolutionary idea needs a lot more upfront cash and capital than they anticipated to get to the next stage. And a lot of these founders are worried that their idea is so good that a lot of these bigger companies with more money are going to just steal their idea and outspend them. So the issues that a lot of these founders of these tech startups or startups run into is that these banks are not willing to give these founders business loans because their startup is too risky of an investment because statistics show that three out of every four startups fail. So the banks are never going to take that risk. So that is where these venture capitalists come in. And what you'll often find with these VC firms is that they often want to invest in companies where the founders are really young guys, because essentially what they want is for these young guys to act like slaves for them. The founders of these startups will often work all day and all night to act as these slaves for these venture capitalists who dictate exactly what these founders need to be doing. So the VC firm who comes to the founder says, hey, we want to partner with you. You're the best. Here's a fleece vest. <laughs> Love the fleece vest. And they rope these founders in that are clueless, that just the, these guys are, are visionaries. Maybe they have a good idea. And a lot of the times they don't have the execution. Like maybe they're first time founders. They've never run a business. And so the VC firm comes in saying, don't worry, we'll help you. We'll guide you through the execution. All that matters is that you come in, you have this great idea. We're going to make you the next Uber, the next Google. Like this is going to be huge. So we're going to write you a check. But this VC firm isn't writing a check with their own money. They're writing a check with investors' money. So they have a fund and the fund manager gets money from these investors saying, we're, we're going to 10x your growth. We're going to 100x um, your investment. We're going to invest in these high growth startups. And we have all this expertise. So this is, this is what we're doing. So the fund manager collects all this money from investors, but how do, how do they make money? Well, they collect a 2% fee for the four years that they call an active investment period. So during that active investment period, it may not even be that active. They're just deploying this capital to the startup so that the founders can hire people, so that the founders can grow. And what's crazy is that 40 cents on every dollar of VC funding goes back into the algorithms of Google, Facebook, and Amazon, which they might have even invested in 10, 15 years ago, which is wild. So they're they're fluffing their own pockets. But at the end of the day, a lot of this venture capital funded money is going into these algorithms to help these companies grow on paper. So the fund collects a 2% management fee for four years during this active investment period, but these investors, they lock up money in the VC for usually about eight years, eight to 10 years. 
After the active investment period, the fund then collects a fee of 1.5% for the remaining six years while that company continues to grow. And all of that money goes into the pockets of the people running the VC firm. So let's say me and Katie have our own VC fund, which, hey, maybe we'll have at one point, but in a very ethical way. So we invest a million dollars into into Alex's whiteboard company. And it's a revolutionary whiteboard company that's going to replace whiteboards and make them super high tech. So we invest a million dollars into this whiteboard company. We give it a valuation of six million. Why six million? I don't know. I just made that up. So I give them a million dollars. Me and Katie give them a million dollars at a valuation of six million. So that gives us 17% ownership in the company. And that's basically how these valuations work. Like at the end of the day, it's a founder coming to a VC with an idea with zero revenue, maybe some proof of concept, but it's often not discussed if they have, you know, good product market fit, what their lifetime customer value is, what their customer acquisition costs are like these things aren't usually discussed at the table. It's just, you know, we've got this revolutionary idea and the VC is like, awesome. We're going to help you grow. So we collect management fees on that million dollar investment and we want to see massive growth. So we give that million dollars to Alex's whiteboard company and we want to see massive growth. So what does Alex's whiteboard company do? They invest 40 cents of every dollar we give them back into Facebook, Apple, and Google. And don't worry if the product isn't getting any better or if the product market fit isn't getting any better. We just want you to get as many customers as possible. And we'll learn how to be profitable later. Don't worry. Don't worry about profitability. We just want to show engaged users. We want to have as many users as possible. And we can't change the narrative that you're not a hyper growth company. So please, you know, don't show a profit. So what we want as venture capitalists is for our startups to give the illusion that they are growing exponentially and that they are one of these disruptive tech platforms that have to be unprofitable in the beginning before they start making money like Amazon or Facebook. So essentially we want to make sure that Alex's whiteboard company has absolutely no profit, but show that they're getting a lot of users the same way Facebook and Instagram did as long as they're showing engagement growth. Then we will be able to raise a lot more money for our fund. The reason why we want our startups like Alex's whiteboard company to show no profit is because as soon as Alex's whiteboard company shows profit, all these investors that are giving us money into the fund will start to bucket this startup company as a normal company rather than a hyper growth company. And normal companies are evaluated on a basis of profit. So if you like look at e-commerce businesses, for example, I've got a lot of experience in this. E-commerce businesses are valued anywhere from five to 10 times EBITDA. And EBITDA is earnings before interest, depreciation, taxes. So it's basically pure profit. It's what the company makes after everything is paid off. So once the startup we invest in is investing 40% of the money we gave them into Facebook, Google ads, Instagram ads, Amazon, all that stuff, and they're growing, we're going to go back to Alex's whiteboard company and say that they're doing amazing. So what ends up happening to our Alex's whiteboard company 
is since they are investing, you know, half 40% of the money we're giving them into growing, Alex's whiteboard company is going to start to run out of money really fast. However, their user base and their sales is going to grow exponentially and skyrocket. So then what we're going to do is we're going to go tell, you know, our friends, Vahid and Nadine, other venture capitalists, <laughs> that we have a great investment that, um, that we've made 400 times our return on and that this startup that we've invested in, Alex Whiteboard Company, is going to be the next revolutionary company. We are going to convince our other venture capitalist buddies to get into the action and to do a series B. So Katie and I, our venture capital company, we did the series A. Before that, the founders might've done a friends and family round where they raised money on their own and then they came to us. So the series A is just the first round of funding that the company, that the founders receive from venture capital. Series B is just us telling our venture capital buddies. So it's another VC firm that invests. And then we might do a series C later on. But when we do a series B, we get more funding to invest in the company. So we say, hey, Alex's whiteboard company, how fast are you growing? Take this money and grow faster. So again, 40 cents of every dollar just went back in the hands of Facebook, Google, and Amazon. And then the cycle repeats itself. You know, they start to run out of money. We go to more of our venture capitalist buddies or the people who did the series B goes to a lot more of their venture capitalist buddies. And then we raise a series C. And since all these venture capitalists now, including ourselves, are all friends, we can make up any valuation we want for the company. And the higher we value this company, the more we are going to attract investors. So when we say the company looks good on paper, what that means is its revenue looks good. So that 40 cents of every dollar that's going back into the hands of Facebook, Google, Amazon, that's going into advertising spend so that we can attract new customers. The key thing, Katie, is that they're not, they're not profiting though. They're not, pro they're not profiting. They're not profitable in the beginning. They're, they're showing growth through revenue and that's highly inflated because like running an e-commerce business, I I've seen this firsthand. Like when you spend money on Facebook ads or Google ads, you know, you might be spending like a thousand dollars, $2,000 a day as a big company. And you're getting a certain amount of that back in new users. So the cost to acquire a user might be hundreds of dollars. Doesn't matter if that makes sense. All that matters is that you're growing and you're acquiring new users and you're growing at such a rapid rate. But is that sustainable? What's the lifetime value of those customers? They're not asking these questions and it doesn't matter. All that, all that matters is that you're growing. So essentially when Nika just brought up CAC, which is cost of customer acquisition, a lot of these companies may spend around $100 to acquire one customer or one user, whereas this one customer or one user may only bring in $10 of profit. Exactly. So if you spend $100 acquiring the customer and they only bring in $10 worth of revenue, you're losing $90 to acquire that customer, which doesn't make sense. 
but that doesn't matter. You're growing, you're acquiring new customers at a rapid rate. So what happens with these different rounds and series of, of funding is with the series A, for example, we set the valuation to 6 million, right? We invested a million dollars into Alex's whiteboard company. We own 17% of that company. But we're also kicking in on the management fees. So we said 2% for the first four years while it's active, and then it drops to 1.5% for the remaining six years. Series B guys buy in, and the company's growing. So we decide to value the company at $24 million. And look at that. The Series A guys are like, wow, 4X returns. This is awesome. And this cycle continues. <laughs> so here's where it actually gets kind of crazy. Once we get to the series C, the series A guys are like, wow, we look at us. We did so well with this investment. This company is just popping off. Why don't we start a sub fund to invest further? And so that sub fund is just a branch of that original VC investing further. So it's just, it's a never ending cycle. So these can go to series E, series F series G, the cycle continues. And as we said, repeats itself. So at this point, everyone is happy. Everyone's making money. Everyone's laughing. The founder of the startup is super rich with this crazy high valuation. Founder of the startup isn't super rich yet. Yes, but he has the illusion that he's super rich. So he's laughing all these venture capitalists right now are bringing in more investors because the investors are looking at this crazy high valuation and the growth and they're interested in giving the fund managers money. And all that is left now is for the company to convince the public of this crazy, super high valuation before the company IPOs. Because the higher the valuation when the company IPOs, the more money everyone, all these investors and the founder of the startup is going to receive when they cash out and eventually sell their shares. It's important to realize though, that not all startups get to this point where they IPO, because as we mentioned before, three out of four startups fail. And, you know, some get acquired by larger companies and other things happen, but let's circle back to when these companies IPO. That's so the big of- bucks are. Yeah. So because of what you just heard throughout this podcast, you should be extremely cautious when purchasing shares of an IPO or purchasing shares of SPACs, because these shares are very, very volatile, especially in the beginning, because no one knows how the market is going to react to the share prices and crazy high valuations. So something Nika and I, Nika and I preach on our podcast is that you should not invest in anything, whether that be a blue chip company, an IPO, a SPAC, anything. Don't invest in anything before you've done your research. And that's super important because you really need to understand the company, its operations, you know, its management team, what they stand for, all of that before you invest your money. Yeah. So you're, you're taking a huge gamble because the valuation of these companies is bogus. Like it literally, these are made up numbers, but the key thing is 
like Katie said, a lot of these startups fail because they fail to convince the public of the value. And I think a lot of the times, like they're not, they're not even revolutionary ideas. Like you see people right now getting funded for every idea, left and right. You're <laughs> hearing about companies that are that are getting VC money. Everybody wants to be a unicorn. Like, oh my God, the term unicorn drives me drives me bonkers. Like what a unicorn is, is it's a company with a billion dollar valuation. What I want you to understand is a lot of those unicorns may not be these incredible companies that you have in your mind. And we'll talk about that a little bit. I don't want to ruffle any feathers, but we'll talk about that. A, a little lot bit. of these valuations don't mean shit, as we've just explained, because all these venture capitalists who get together and value these companies are inflating the value because it's in their best interest to do so. So what you'll see with a lot of these companies at IPO is when they IPO, their share price starts off super high. And some people may buy into it. Some people may not buy into it and buy shares. But after a while, you will see that stock price start to plummet and eventually you know, stabilize and even out. The reason why a lot of these stock prices plummet after the IPO is because people don't buy into their valuation, don't buy into their into their business, essentially. The big money, the big bucks are made in the exit. So I just, I thought of the seed, like if you guys have seen Wolf of Wall Street when they're doing the Steve Madden IPO and everybody's going wild and that day, there's just so much energy and excitement around the IPO. Like that is literally what an IPO is like every day for companies, for these VC firms that go through the IPO process, for a lot of, you know, um, new tech companies that we, we may not have even heard of, like IPOs happen constantly, but the big money is in the exit. Uh, and also the VC has been collecting management fees the whole time. So they're still making money. But when that exit happens, all of these guys that have bought into series A, B, and C, they can sell their shares because they've been holding on to them. They've bought in at a $6 million valuation. Now that company might be worth 600 million. So now, hey, I've 100X my investment. Look at that. Now, not every one of these companies is gonna make it there. So the VC firm offsets risk by having some of their investments make it to these final stages, but some, you know, they've, they've come to a certain valuation, they've grown so much, those management fees are still there. So even if the company doesn't do well, they've got the management fees and they offset the risk. So that's where the Ponzi scheme of this comes in because they use funding from new investors. They bring in new investors to pay off the old ones. And what happens when these startups do fail is these venture capitalists, these VCs still make their management fees, but the investors who invested in, you know, created this fund lose their investment, essentially. A lot of the times these investors don't really mind because, you know, in their head, they're like, okay, we already know three out of four startups fail. So this is just one of the three out of the four, but you know, the fourth one that pops off is going to more than make up for the money I just lost on these other three investments. Because what happens is they buy into a fund. They're not buying into that specific startup. So they're diversifying the risk or so they think, so they're told, right? Exactly. And then they, they see they see the growth and you know some of these companies do exit and they say, look at my IRR. Like they're amazing. Exactly. And the ones that do exit and the ones that do perform and the ones that IPO and make crazy money offset a lot of the times the investments they lost on the three out of the four that didn't make it. Yeah. 
So the reason why this whole Ponzi scheme works is because the money never stops flowing in. If at any point the money stopped, it would stop, but it, that's not going to happen. So I feel like this is a bubble. It's not going to pop because, you know, people want to create and they want to build and they want to innovate. And there's always going to be people that want to fund it, but they're not funding true growth. They're not funding true, true opportunities, true potential. A lot of the time they're just, they're funding hype. And I think the people at the companies, like at these companies that are building useless products, a lot of the times they don't even know that the business is useless sometimes. They're just, they're driven by this founder that is being told to walk and act in a certain way. And they they have this hyper growth. They see new faces coming in. They see that the business is expanding. They're acquiring new users. There's new tech that's being built. So they, they see this growth and they don't even realize a lot of the time that the business they're building is useless. So I don't think the Ponzi scheme is going to stop. I think we're going to continue to see businesses come out and become public and they're getting more and more creative with this. Like if you guys have seen SPACs and if you know what a SPAC is, a SPAC is a, it stands for a special purpose acquisition company. And it's sometimes referred to as a blank check company, but it's basically a vehicle for a transaction to take place. And one of those transactions could be from taking a company private to a publicly traded company. It's exactly these VC buddies getting together, taking one of those private companies that has gone through multiple series of funding and is super hyped up. It's a way for it to become publicly traded in a way that kind of skirts the SEC's guidelines. The reason why these Ponzi schemes are never going to stop is, as we mentioned before, people don't even realize they're in a Ponzi scheme or conducting these Ponzi schemes. I think that's another important thing to know is that Ponzi schemes are always going to exist because the people targeted for these Ponzi schemes are very naive and don't even realize what's going on. So we see this in, there's so many great examples of this, but like the first one that I think of is WeWork. So WeWork went public via a SPAC deal at a $9 billion valuation, which was actually less than 20% of its 2019 SoftBank valuation. So it did it did go public at a little bit less of a valuation, but WeWork in 2020, it valuation dropped, obviously, because it, if you guys aren't familiar with WeWork, it's basically um, public office space. So companies rent um, rent office space and it's, it's very open and they've got like beer taps and kombucha taps and, and iced coffee. And it's a space for a lot of these startups that they've invested in to have office spaces at a much cheaper rate than potentially investing in physical office space. WeWork, so in 2019, WeWork was valued at 47 billion, 47 billion. And then it fell to about $8 billion. But at one point, its valuation was so overhyped at $47 billion. Airbnb's valuation when they went public was $100 billion. But Airbnb has so much more recognition in the market. It's It's got um, a lot more value in the sense that there's there's brand recognition. There's so many users worldwide. It's, it's become a super recognized brand. Whereas WeWork doesn't have that same appeal. It's, it's, you know, Airbnb is something that every single person, regardless of where you are in the world, if you want to go on vacation, you think, okay, I'm going to rent an Airbnb. 
but you don't think about renting office space in the same way. So the valuations are just crazy and it, it doesn't make sense. So guys, I don't think that this Ponzi scheme is going to stop because the money is just, it keeps flowing in. It's not, it's not going to stop because the VCs are happy. Their buddies are happy. The founders, when they go public are happy. And, you know, if they don't go public, one thing that we didn't really chat about is the company can be sold for parts. That happens all the time. It's kind of, it's interesting because I want to see what happens in the next 10 years. There, there needs to be a radical shift and people, the general public needs to understand that the valuation of these companies is bogus a lot of the time. They're made up numbers. The only thing that truly values a company, I think, is the ability for it to produce profit. That is what a business should be after. That is the main core goal of a business, of an enterprise, is to make profit. And so when a company is told, or sorry, when these startups are told, don't show a profit, that is a big red flag. That in and of itself is like, hmm, let me take a step back and ask why. And so that's why yesterday or the other day when I shared about Wise, like Wise is just a company that I came across and you know, I see a lot of value in what they're doing. They're making international money transfers be very accessible across 56 different countries. They're not the only company that, you know, is self-funded in the same way, but they didn't go about an IPO. They went about a direct listing instead. So their, their approach to going public was a little bit different. And frankly, they didn't really need the money. They did want to get um, a little bit more capital so that they could keep growing, but they've proven that they were able to self-fund so far. Um, or so much of their growth, which is incredible. And they're actually profitable, which is why when I saw that, I was like, damn, you know, this company's doing something right. We need to have more venture capitalists see value in companies like that, in founders that want to grow on their own. I think we need to have a collective shift in realizing that a lot of these tech companies that we're investing in. And if they don't, you're just essentially gambling. 100%. Like when I invest in SPACs and I buy a few SPACs, (laughs) I'm I'm essentially gambling with that money. Uh, You don't know, and you don't know how the public is going to react to it. That's the big thing. So when we say we're gambling, it's there's so many different factors that affect the stock market. So when these companies do go public, it's all about investor feel, the emotional investing and the trading that's happening that sets the valuation. And that's why, you know, they're so volatile. It's because there's no actual basis. There's no consistent growth. There might be for some companies like Wise. Um, Wise is just a good example. There, there are companies that are focused on profitable growth, but not all. And so I, I want to leave you guys with that thought just to be mindful and understand that you know, venture capital is potentially the biggest Ponzi scheme of our time and nobody is talking about it. So that's all for today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please stay tuned to our next few episodes coming out every Wednesday. And again, thanks for listening. Bye, guys.